I declare to be a follower of Jesus Christ and promise to uphold his church by my prayers, presence, gifts, and service. Does that sound familiar? These are from the vows many of us took when we became members of the First United Methodist Church. Good morning, church family. Good morning. I've been announced as Becky Jolene, and I was invited to speak a little about presence. The kind of presence that means you are in this place. This sanctuary was first used in 1956, the year I was born, the year I was baptized, and 63 years later, I'm still present. In my years as an elementary school teacher, I would emphasize that our second grade class was a community of learners. Every student was necessary for our best learning to be done. My mantra was, we can't be us without you. And I know the English teachers know that's not grammatically correct. My students knew that their gifts and talents were needed so our class could be whole. My presence in this church has given me the honor of meeting the people who have changed my life forever. Many of them are still here today. They have been with me through childhood, adulthood, parenthood, and whatever this is now. We have shared and will share births, birthdays, weddings, baptisms, communions, and burials. These people are former Sunday school teachers, Bible school helpers, church dinner and potluck workers, staff members, new folk with new ideas and new perspectives, choir members, youth adults, young adults, and children who brought tears to my eyes to see how much they love the Lord. Just regular people like you and me, touching each other's lives and and deepening our faith. Many of the elders who have gone to heaven are still with me in my heart and my mind. They helped me on my journey with Christ and exemplified the healthy habit of attending church and church functions regularly. A community of believers, a church family of all ages. But that's not all. First United Methodist churches are connectional. We are stronger together, and our presence is felt all over the world. I love to visit umc.org and other resources our global church provides to see how we are the hands and feet of Christ around the planet. I would be remiss not to give a nod to my parents, Bonnie and Ivan Stinson, for their modeling of being present and living a Christian life. I know many of you are present because my mom made a connection with you. 
She so misses her church family. May God bless you, your presence at this church. Amen. Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Luke. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The reading today is taken from the 15th chapter of Luke, verses 1 through 10. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. 
Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'd like to first thank you for the wonderful welcome. Kesa, who was here last week with you, is a good friend of mine, and she wasn't lying. (laughs) You guys have been very gracious in your welcome. So, 1984, Steve Martin movie, The Lonely Guy. Has anyone here seen that one? Okay, true confession, I haven't either. But there's an iconic scene, the restaurant scene, that may be familiar. Steve Martin walks into a fancy restaurant, Lots of ambient chatter, um, light jazz music playing in the background, the clinking of silver on fine china. He asks the maitre d' for a table, and the maitre d' says, how many in your party? He answers, I'm alone. Alone, the maitre d' asks. The music stops. Everyone turns and stares. They start to walk to a table, and a spotlight shines on the lonely guy. You get the message that dining alone is not the way to go. Now, to be honest, I I dine alone a lot. It doesn't bother me. I'm comfortable with myself. Yet, if you want to celebrate, isn't it better among friends? In today's gospel reading, we hear about not one but two celebrations, both held in the presence of friends and neighbors, rejoicing in the good news of the lost being found presence. This month, you're hearing about stewardship and discipleship. Stewardship is defined in the United Methodist Handbook. I think it's kind of cool that we have a handbook, but it's defined in the United Methodist Handbook as a devout investment or use of money, time, and ability. This is in order to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. This message is coming to you this month in the context of a reaffirmation of our baptismal vows. Um, Many of you did this when you joined the church as an adult even, and that is in which we pledge to to offer our prayers, our presence, our gifts, and our service. But what really does presence look like? Is it just showing up at the party? This week, We remember the tragic events of September 11th, 2001. What first comes to mind to me is something Mr. Rogers said about tragedy. He said that when things go wrong, always look for the helpers. This week, I read a series of remembrances about one man who defined the power of presence. Father Michael Judge a Roman Catholic priest of the Franciscan Order, was a chaplain to the New York City Fire Department. A couple of quotes about Father Michael. Stephen McDonald said, Michael had no use for physical things. Give him a cashmere sweater, and it would end up on the back of a homeless person. But 
go to him with a troubled soul, and he would listen intently for as long as it took. Father Michael Duff described him this way. A little old lady would come up to him and he'd talk to her, you know, as if she were the only person on the face of the earth. Father Michael described the power of presence this way. If you descend into somebody else's hell and stand there with them, it ceases to be hell. I'd like to share an excerpt from a blog post by Kittredge Cherry remembering Father Michael. He rushed with the firefighters into the North Tower right after the first plane hit. Refusing to be evacuated, he prayed and gave sacraments as wreckage crashed outside. While he was praying, Judge was struck and killed in a storm of flying steel and concrete when the South Tower collapsed. Judge Judge was designated victim 0001 because his was the first body recovered at the scene. As this disaster unfolded, city officials pleaded with him not to go in. But for him, that's not how presence worked. A quote from his blog that he'd written previous to this, of course, read as follows. I, Michael Judge, am not capable of doing these things on my own. I walk in, hold a hand, wipe a tear, say a prayer. But that's not me. That's the grace of God. I don't worry about the details. It's a mystery. It's God. Presence, however, doesn't always come at such a cost. At the end of July, many media outlets reported a happening at the U.S.-Mexico border that, for once, had a sliver of silver, of silver lining to it. Two California professors helped design a teeter-totter that used the border fence between El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez as a fulcrum. Three bright pink teeter-totters were installed so that children on both sides of the border could play with each other. Now, I've been a classroom teacher for 23 years, and I will tell you there's little that connects kids more than a shared playtime. Now, while this event was done in many ways as a political statement, at the end of the day, these kids, separated by a wall, got to play together. Presence. In my time as a classroom teacher, I've seen the stunning capacity of kids to care for each other, showing this power of presence. It comes naturally to them. When we're nurtured, it spreads exponentially. About two weeks after the shooting at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, we had a lockdown at my elementary school. Lockdown was really unnecessary. Shelter in place would have been more appropriate. It's very sad that my students and I all know the difference. But with heightened concern on the part of administration, we went into lockdown mode. Lights off, doors locked, kids barricaded behind tables. They're supposed to be silent and still, but my fifth graders couldn't quite do it. Jazz was crawling around on the classroom floor, and just as I was about to try and get her to stop, I realized what she was doing. She had marine crawled to the far side of the classroom, got the tissue box, and was crawling around and making sure that every student had a tissue. Another student, his nickname is Toast. Toast was crying softly. 
and he was immediately surrounded by classmates rubbing his back and comforting him. Presence. Now this year I teach kindergarten. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Kids that have never been away from mommy and daddy, we have a lot of tears. Love it, but wow. From the first hour of my afternoon session, my teaching partner is on lunch and so she's not there and I'm running solo. I had a new student midway through the third week of class, and she was having none of this school stuff. Full-blown toddler tantrum on the floor, kicking and hitting and throwing things, and trying to run out the door. So I'm trying to block her, I'm trying to stop her, while trying not to get hit or bit or scratched or, you know, kicked. And also trying to get the rest of my kids up at the front to sit down on the carpet I saw one of my just-beyond-crying boys start to tear up again, so I gave him a task. I said, Michael, could you go to, my fo- go to the desk, get my phone so I can call the office? And he stepped right up to the task. He found it, brought the phone to me. I asked him to go sit, but he wouldn't leave the screaming girl. He came over and put his hand on her shoulder and said, It's all right. Your mommy will be here soon. So heartbreakingly sweet. I thanked him for being a helper, and he said, my mommy said you got to take care of people when they're crying. Presence. At five years old, it can be that simple. But I'm kind of looking out on this congregation, and I know speaking for myself, I don't think many of us are five. So a little older than five, perhaps. So what are practical things we can do to show stewardship with our presence, to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ in today's world. Well, we are California. We have mountains and oceans, rivers and forests, landslides and earthquakes, floods and fires. And I don't think any of those things are going to stop anytime soon. So I've been doing a bit of work with the uh, disaster response folks at our, our annual conference office and They like to give the idea, what if disaster response and disaster relief was a way to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world? Now, I've been in the train-for-help mode since I was a kid. I got my first CPR and first aid training when I was 12, and we won't talk about how I lost my gum in the recessa anidol, but uh, it was a long time ago. I still hear about it. I took life-saving class when I was 15. I was a lifeguard throughout college. You know, that kind of thing. But I always thought it would be good to do more. To, you know, life gets busy, though. You know, time and, well, these huge disasters would hit. I always felt like I could do something. I mean, it may not look like it, but I can swing a hammer or work a shovel with the best of them. So when an earthquake would hit, or a hurricane, fires, floods, the tsunamis in Japan and Indonesia, I'd feel like like I could step in to help, but I'd have needed to have been trained long before the disaster hit. Now, being a lifetime Californian, it was only a matter of time before these things got personal. Just over a year ago, some dear friends lost their home in the car fire in Redding. I figured they lived in town almost, so they should be fine, until they weren't. I remember standing in my driveway in Sacramento 
ash covering my car, wondering if the smoke I was smelling was from their house. Then, last November, it was paradise. My sister lived in paradise for over 20 years. And yes, that statement is now past tense. She lost everything. And I finally got off my duff, got online with our annual conference website, and looked for a connection with UMCOR, the United Methodist Committee on Relief. I found an ERT training, early response team, offered through our California-Nevada annual conference, and I signed up. But I was about to go in for knee surgery. I couldn't be much help on the physical end of things for a while. While I was awaiting the training, I volunteered with a dozen or so folks to do data entry, taking the hard copy forms that the survivors of the campfire had filled out at FEMA headquarters in Chico, and entering their information into a database so that assistance could be arranged. Even though I hadn't yet been through the training to, go to, a, to actually go to a disaster zone and help, here was a way my presence could be helpful. I learned a lot about disaster response, about the disaster response process, just listening in on the conversations that day and looking at what people had written on their forms. When the ERT training day actually came, I found out that disaster response wasn't just about swinging hammers and tarping roofs and cleaning up after floods. The core of UMCOR assistance is presence, capital P, presence. While we learned about the different, response, the different roles of early response team members, what stuck out to me most was the focus on providing a caring Christian presence in the aftermath of a disaster. And this is from the training materials. While there are specific tasks assigned to early response teams, no task is more important than the people they serve. Part of the covenant signed by team members states that we will be ready to listen as a ministry of healing. And again, from the training materials, what do early response teams do? Number one, provide a Christian presence. It can be the most important thing a team can do. Additionally, observe survivors' needs and report these to local operations and be part of the caring ministry of listeners who will help the survivors begin to heal. One of the team members is the designated listener slash recorder. While all team members should always put their survivors before the task at hand, each team has one person dedicated to being that attentive ear to get the survivor's story and refer their needs to the conference disaster response team. So while being an early responder to a disaster is an act of service, the most important form of that service comes from presence. I was pretty excited to see you have a volunteers in mission uh, poster on your board out there. It looks like some of you will be going to help out in um, Middletown, I believe it is. I know that uh, they've been doing a lot of work to get that um, rebuild going there, so that's wonderful to see. But so uh, what does this presence look like, boots on the ground? I went to paradise with my sister and her husband on their second trip back to the ash pit that had been their home. I was not long 
post-surgery. I think I still had the stitches in my knee at that point. They each have disabilities, which makes them unstable on their feet. We were quite the sight. We donned our Tyvek suits and our gloves and our goggles and our boots and our masks. And then I asked her what she was looking for. I mean, she's my sister. I know her. I know her situation. Things of monetary value were not going to be the issue here. She paused. And she said, I'd like to find Grammy's cookie sheets. In that moment, I realized that I wasn't there for stuff recovery. She was looking for her identity, some evidence that she existed, had connections, a history. And as someone who shared that history, my presence, beyond any limited ability the group of us had to rake through the ashes, my presence was the best that I could give her. We'd been there about an hour when a truck pulled up. It was a neighbor, a man in his mid-70s, who had lived on this cul-de-sac his entire life. In fact, his father had built many of the houses there. He, too, had lost everything. I watched as they talked, as he broke down and cried, as she held the sobbing man in her arms and let him weep stopping her own work, one survivor to another, presence. Seeing this in real time, this wasn't just an action described in a training manual. This was a holy act. Someone, even in her own brokenness, demonstrating what it means to be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. But going back to this morning's scripture reading, weren't we starting with a party? Rejoicing? How does the presence, how does presence fit in to that story? How does presence bring us to the party? There's a song you might hear on Christian radio channels called Save My Life. It's by Sidewalk Prophets. Now, I can be of pretty mixed opinion about a lot of the theology you hear in so-called contemporary Christian music, but I think this song really has something going on. The basic premise of the song is about recognizing a person's pain and saying something, offering hope, recognition as a beloved of God. Now, despite my middle name being Evangeline, there's a lot of irony to that. I get pretty uncomfortable with something that suggests we drop our personal religious views on someone unwarranted. Pushy doesn't work for me. Yet, this one speaks more to being open to God working in us and through us, being the conduit for God's grace and love. The chorus goes like this, and don't worry, I won't sing. If you looked me right in the eye, would you see the pain deep inside? Would you take the time to tell me what I need to hear? Tell me that I'm not forgotten. Tell me there's a God who can be more than all I've ever wanted. Because right now, I need a little hope. I need to know that I'm not alone. Maybe God is calling you tonight to say something that might save my life. So I'd like to ask a quick show of hands. How many of you have been Methodists your entire life? Good number of people, okay. How many of you have maybe four years or less or not even? Okay, my people, yay, we're here. You see, I'm not quite four years in myself. I was raised in a 
let's say, prominent non-Protestant denomination, K through 12 parochial school, hated it. When I hit adulthood, I turned my back and never looked back. Except, well, sort of. Seems I actually have a lot of neck pain for the number of years I spent looking over my shoulder as I was running away. And I go back again to those lyrics. Tell me what I need to hear. Tell me that I'm not forgotten. Tell me there's a God who can be more than all I've ever wanted. And I'm here today, pretty far along now in my seminary education and working my way (laughs) through the UMC ordination process because some pretty amazing folks took initiative to be a caring Christian presence in my life. I remember distinctly when my now friend Carrie, then just an acquaintance, said, God loves us, that's about it, when describing his faith position. And after decades of searching, hidden searching, that simple statement and the presence of loving Christian folks proved me to be that lost coin that wandering sheep. Funny thing is, I thought the story was about us needing to pay attention to things we had lost. I won't tell you how old I was, but it started with a 50, when I realized that this was a story not about what we needed to do to find God, but how God actively seeks us. We don't go looking for God as if God is hiding from us in some elusive game of cat and mouse. Relationship with God is not a prize earn, something we have to prove ourselves worthy of by successfully facing some Herculean task. God seeks us. God also uses us as a conduit. Not many of us hear the booming voice coming from the clouds these days. Yet, if we are receptive, we can see God calling us through the presence of others. I'm here because of that presence. I'm sure many of you are, too, if you think about it. And in the context of today's gospel story, I'd like to think it's kind of cool that after three-plus decades of hiding from God, once I let God in, there might have been a mighty party going on somewhere. I know I've been rejoicing ever since. So as we go forward today, I urge you to think about your presence, what words or actions, big or seemingly small, might be that presence of God for someone else. So like Father Michael had said, it's a mystery. It's God. Friends, I'd like to end today with a prayer often recited by Father Michael Judge. It goes like this. Lord, take me where you want me to go. Let me meet who you want me to meet. Tell me what you want me to say and keep me out of your way. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Friends, don't give up. Pray together, hold hands together, believe together, love together. Through the grace of God, we are saved. Together, go and be the presence of God's grace in this beautiful world. Thanks be to God.
Thanks for listening to this podcast of the First United Methodist Church in Turlock, California. This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial share-alike license. For more information about our church, visit www.fumcturlock or call the church at 209-668-3000. Visitors are always welcome. And now, may the peace of the Lord dwell in your hearts this day, and may God bless you.